If you would open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah uh, chapters 2 through 4, that's what we're looking at this morning. Isaiah chapter 2, uh, we'll begin in and then we'll move through to chapter 4. You'll remember by way of introduction that we are dealing with an era of four kings from Uzziah through to Hezekiah in the 8th century. It covers nearly 100 years and Isaiah begins his ministry about uh, 840, um, I think, around about then. But it's, it was on your picture last week, which I don't have with me this week, but you can look that up. If you weren't here last week, it just shows you should have come because last week we had the pictures and this week we have none. All right? But today is a pretty serious talk, so I want to pray. Uh, all, all talks from the pulpit should be serious, and this one is uh, particularly serious and touches the very core of our humanity. So let me pray as we begin, both for yourselves and for me. Almighty God, let us live this morning and for the rest of our days on the right side of pride, glorying not in self but in your majestic splendour. Let the dark side of human pride not swell in the preacher's heart nor be left to grow in the listener's soul. Help us see ourselves through your eyes so wrongful pride will wither, decay, die and perish. Every faculty of mind and body is an undeserved gift from your almighty hand. But sin's deformity is stamped on us, darkening our person and touching us with its corruption. We turn your generous good into our prideful claims and we dare to polish self in the sight of others while basking in applause that should be rightly yours. But for your mercy, such prideful theft on our part would bring hell's greatest torments. Humble me this day as I am tempted to think highly of myself even from your pulpit. Through the vision of your greatness expressed in grace, mercy and love, please rob me of my pride and leave pride's account empty this day. And in your mercy, through the teaching of your word, please fill the accounts of every person present in this cathedral today with your exalted person, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us all this day to stand with the watchful eye of faith and to cling with determined grasp to our humble Lord. As a people for whom our pride hides guilt, please let us hide ourselves in Christ, the Redeemer, and to ascribe our deliverance to your grace, living only to hallow your name and see your kingdom come. We humbly pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is pride? Well, I can tell you that in one moment it can be beautiful and in the next it can be ruinous. One on the bright side of pride, I cannot describe my delight in God and his people. And uh, though I don't know all of you, many of, I, many of you I do. And you are a great delight and encouragement at the level of Christian humility to me. And I'm thankful for that. 
And that's a good side of pride. Yesterday I held my grandson. That's a great side of pride. Um, although he could get wrong too, couldn't it? Last week I saw the Sharks win the grand final, and, but that's got nothing to do with anything. But my wife told me to tell everybody that. No, she didn't. Actually, that's a lie. But today I'm talking about not the good side of pride. I want to talk about the other side of pride this morning, the dark side. Hubris, as some people call it, is the first item in the list of the seven most deadly sins, which is followed by greed, lust, malicious envy, gluttony, anger and sloth. And I'm not surprised that hubris is the first because it inhabits the other six. As we come to Isaiah this morning and to the people of God in the Old Testament, my question really is, what has happened to them? What has happened to them? And could this happen to us? Our journey into Isaiah today actually begins in 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 3. You can look that up later on if you like. There we learn that Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king and he reigned for 52 years. And we are told in verse 5 that as long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. Ominously though, we read in verse 8 that he became famous and powerful. But verse 16 says it, all in ways that we contemporary observers of fame and power know all too well. We read in verse 16, after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Proud-hearted, self-sufficient, presumptuous, angry, and with an inability to accept correction, Uzziah was struck down with leprosy. Because Uzziah filled the temple where only God can fill the temple. He presumed to do things that he should never have done. And God struck him down with leprosy. You know, I can't think of a, a, a better disease to make someone humble than leprosy. No one wants to be with you when you've got leprosy. You can't look at yourself even because you, get, you become covered with all sorts of sores. And it strips you even of the power to feel what is hurting you. It's a most humbling disease. Now I don't know if, I, if Uzziah ever repented but he certainly died with the disease and we'll see that when we come to Isaiah chapter 6. But Uzziah's days are the days of chapters 2 through to 5. And like king, it seems so like people. And as we will see, they are alike in pride and they become alike under judgment. The first thing we ought to say um, as we come to this passage is that the other side of pride, the dark side of pride, God is disgusted with. And chapter 2 verse 12 sounds an ominous note. For, the day, for, for a day belonging to the Lord of hosts is coming against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, 
it will be humbled. And then you get these pictures of high and lofty things. In these chapters of Isaiah, the contrast between God and man is evident as humanity in its pride is matched up against the majestic splendor of God. If in our dark-sided pride we could actually see God's majestic splendor even to this very day, then like the women of chapter 4, I think we would all cry out for someone to take away our disgrace. And as we watch the chapters unfold, and indeed, sorry, not just would we do that, but like Isaiah in chapter 6, I think we would go, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. We would recognise in the presence of the majestic splendour of God just how sinful we really are and how desperately in need of his kindness we've become. And as we watch the chapters unfold before us today, from hubris to holiness, God will move his people God is always doing that in the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this, but he is always moving people to holiness. Jesus dies in order to make us holy. God sends his Holy Spirit that we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another, that we might be holy. Christians, if you are a Christian, feel a deep sense of, of movement in their own life towards holiness and longing to be that. If I could put it this way, aspirational Christianity is holiness. It's to be holy as God would want us to be, set apart as his people, to be like him. But it's the dark side of pride of the people, the leaders and the women that occupy these first few chapters of Isaiah. So let's begin with the invitation to the people in chapter 2, verse 5. You've got it? House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's light. I was in a park yesterday in Stanwell Tops um, with my family and... uh, uh, a future member of the family and his brother was talking to me about Christian things and uh, uh, I said to him, you know, in Isaiah it talks about going for a stroll in the Lord's light. He said, oh, that's good. I said, no, it's not. And you must not think that verse 5 of chapter 2 is a pleasant invitation. But God is saying to his people, you come and walk in the Lord's light. And you know what the Lord's light does? It shines into all the dark places where you live and exposes all the dark things and realities of your life. And here is the invitation. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the Lord's light. Let's let the light shine in on our darkness. It's an important walk but that by its end in verse 22 teaches us a very important thing. See it, verse 22? Put no more trust in man who has only breath in his nostrils. And then it asks the question, what is he really worth? That's a good question really, isn't it? What are you really worth? 
You might want to get God's perspective on that. Okay, we'll come back to that. We will get God's perspective through this. Between the walk, uh, walk's beginning and ending, we're invited to see the lost cause of the dark side pride of people. The dark sided pride of people. Verses 6 to 8, they, are, they run superstitiously to fortune tellers. They ally themselves to foreigners. They trust in their wealth. They surround themselves with military hardware and their gods are self-manufactured idols. Where did God go in that? Did you notice him disappear? And oh, what a contemporary picture that is. With our star gods in the newspaper every week and the mediums that you can go and have your cards read. Hopefully you're not doing that. Of course, we form treaties with global society, within a global society, and we love our money and our treasures, don't we? And the worship of almost anything we can make or do or control is so apparent. It's staggering how contemporary 8th century BC dark-sided pride is in 21st century AD. Isaiah's outburst in verse 9 is a shocking one, I think, because he says, do not forgive them. Do not forgive them. Offers his perspective on the unforgivable nature of the dark side of human pride. And his expectation, boy, somebody's got their music up loud, haven't they? What is that noise? Can you hear that? There's a music festival on outside. You won't be distracted by that like I am, will you? All right? Okay? All right? Good. Just um, pray that the Lord drive the noise away. Um, all right? Sorry. Not the festival, the noise. All right? Uh, keep going. Uh, notice the outburst. Do not forgive them. It offers the perspective of the unforgivable nature, really, of dark-sided pride. It really should be unforgivable. And his expectation in verse 10, then, is that such dark-sided, proud people should go into the rocks and hide from God. They should hide themselves from God. Why? Well, so important is the answer that he gives it twice, actually, in verse 11 and then again in verse 17. He says, a day is coming, verse 17, when human pride will be brought low and the loftiness of men will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. God won't allow his honour to be stolen by humanity. And the wisdom of verse 22, again, jumps off the page for us all. Put no more trust in man who has only breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? It's a sobering um, correction to pride to, to jump out of Isaiah into the letter of James in the New Testament who actually says this. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's rather humbling, isn't it? It's a great perspective, and a right perspective. We are but mist, 
here for a moment, then vanished. Well, thus perhaps ends the walk. But having walked in the light concerning the dark side of pride in chapter 2, now Isaiah in chapter 3 calls us to observation of the ruinous nature and future on the dark side of pride. You see how the chapter begins, chapter 3? Observe this. So we move from the walk to observation. Was the observation while on the walk or did it come after the walk? I don't think it matters. Just you've been on the walk in the Lord's light. Now observe the realities. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord God of hosts is about to remove from Jerusalem and from Judea, uh, and from Judah, sorry, every kind of security. He's going to strip away their spiritual claims with their mediums and fortune tellers. He's going to strip away their wealth. He's going to strip away leadership, we'll see in a moment. Can I just suggest to you, though, that might sound like a terrifying verse. Remember the first verse I said, uh, walking in the Lord's light may not be good when you thought that it was good? You might read this and you might say, that's dreadful. Can I suggest it actually may not be? Because there are people sometimes who have been stripped of every earthly security under the judgment of God and found themselves in a right place with Jesus where they can be truly secure. There are men and women who you can meet whose lives become completely shattered um, by various different circumstances. I was talking, Janine was sharing with me a party she went to recently and a young girl who she knew from school shared how her whole family's company had been taken away from them. She spoke about how in the end they had to sell their house and now they were living in something much smaller. They'd gone from the rich and famous to being almost nothing. I don't think necessarily that they've come to Christ, but can I say there are many people who've experienced that downward spiral where every earthly security is stripped away and at the bottom of it, they suddenly go, "Uh uh-huh. And the best moment in their existence was to be introduced to the one who is indeed the security of life, Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Saviour. This is a tragic verse in so many ways. But through the stripping down of Israel's security, there will in the end be a remnant that are saved. Of course, the first security to go is leadership uh, in this chapter and the results are disastrous, like a William Golding's um, 1954 classic novel, The Lord of the Flies. There's no heroes now, no warriors, no judges, no elders. In verses 2 and 3, they're gone and the country is left in the hands of the youth. Now, if you've ever left your children in the car for longer than a couple of seconds while you ducked into a shop, you would understand how tragic that is. The situation for the nation is like that of a home where the parents have been removed or they've abdicated and the children are left to rule. Now, I've had children who in the absence of their mother and father have ruled the house when we've been out. And you know what follows? Verse 4, instability. And you know what follows? Instability. Verse 5, brutality. Thankfully, mum and dad come home. 
But for Judah, mum and dad aren't coming home. They're going to be carried off, ultimately, by the Babylonians into exile. Let this be a warning to parents. You're not the only ones, but you're over here. And I don't mind if the children here never abdicate your responsibilities to lead the home. Never abdicate that responsibility. I think verses 6 and 7 say it all. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house. Why his brothers? Because his father's gone. And say, you have a cloak, you be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. Can you imagine leadership where the only qualification is actually owning a coat? You might think that there are leaders in our nation who simply got into power with not much more qualification than that. But can I tell you, a purple shirt and a dog collar and a title does not make for a leader. But you know, the worst thing about the situation in this chapter is that things have got so bad that in fact, no one wants to lead now. No one wants to lead. Look at it, verse 7. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. That's hit the bottom, hasn't it? No remedy. Of course, the only remedy will, of course, be God. If only they will turn to him. Two things to note as contemporary listeners here. And I want you to hear this. Prosperous ages, like the age of Uzziah, often ignore the prophets of doom to their peril. No one likes a prophet of doom, do they? But you can ignore them to your peril. You can think, oh, that will never happen. Go away. But judgment did come on Judah. Consistent with verses 1 to 7, the Babylonian siege led to famine, leaders were killed or deported, and a complete breakdown of social order followed. So what I want to say to you this morning, at least in one contemporary application, one of the great dangers of living in prosperous Australia is that we can think that judgment will never come or that hell does not exist. That's a huge danger. The second thing we often do, though, if we allow God to be a God who brings judgment, and he has to be if he's any good as a God, any God that does not bring justice is no God at all, as far as I'm concerned, because without justice... He can't be depended upon and he is not loving. But the second thing we often do is to accuse God of unfairness in his judgment. How could you have a fair God who would allow people to go to hell? But there would be something terribly wrong, not with God but with us. If you thought God unfair in his judgment, 
when people oppress others in verse 5, defy him in verse 8, flaunt their sins in verse 9, and in verses 14 to 15, steal from the poor, crush God's people, and grind their faces. What could make us think that our sin is not that bad after all? What could possibly make us think that? Other than our dark-sided pride. I find verse 9 refreshing in an age that longs to put God on trial. You know, I meet people all the time who want to put God in the dock and put him on trial. Well, look what verse 9 does. Thank Isaiah is helpful here in an age that longs to put God on trial Isaiah places the problem where the problem belongs as he says woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves who's responsible not God we are for our dark sided pride chapter 3 verse um, sorry. Um, of course, what follows this judgment on the dark side of people's pride and the devastation of the removal of prideful leadership is something you don't often see in the Bible and rarely is it ever preached so specifically. We might call it a woman's touch. But it's not the touch you might want or expect, ladies. Chapter 3 verse 16 begins with the most scathing and caustic critique of women I have ever encountered in the scriptures. It is so serious and would be deemed by the world today as so politically incorrect that I should not speak of it. But that would be in the end to deny God's voice. So I will. Here is a critique of Judah's women the women of God's people, the women of the church of its day. Listen carefully. This is not the bishop speaking. The Lord says this. Got it? Verse 16. The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. They are a superior group of women. They are snobbish, wealthy, trying to be desirable women. They could be of any age, be they small and young, or be they old and accomplished. They could be any woman in the building today. And key to their problem is they don't need God. And I agree with the preacher who said this is a despicable and one-dimensional image of a woman that our age glories in and tragically through every fashion magazine and teen movie seeks to dress our little girls to match. Do you hear that, parents? It's a dangerous world we're raising our kids in, isn't it? It's a dangerous world for a woman to live in, isn't it? 
I love my wife, you know that. But I love the fact that she will often go to the marketplace and she say, you know what I hate about going to Miranda Fair? Anyone know where Miranda Fair is? It's in Sydney. It's a big shop, one of those Westfield things. She, she says, you know what I hate about going there? Too much choice. Everywhere I look, there's choice. And of course, with all that choice, we're dealing with a culture that has the kind of prosperity to have purchase power, haven't we? And depending on your purchase power, you can compete with others as to what you will wear and how you will smell and all of those sorts of things. It's a dangerous age for a woman to live in. And gentlemen, you don't help sometimes. Because your lustful, desirous attitudes to women are that they will dress in a certain way, that they'll smell in a certain way. And so you encourage such prideful godlessness in the way women dress, in the way they strut their stuff. Let me give you the contrasting biblical picture of womanhood. There are many of them in the scriptures and I'm very thankful for that. This is an oddity, I think, Isaiah. It speaks generally, the Bible, about all of us, but this is a moment that speaks specifically to women. But there are some, there is the contrasting picture of womanhood. You can go, I think, to Proverbs 31, which is the beautiful picture of the industrious, godly woman. But if, we, if I take you to 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for a woman who professes to worship God. He wants you to adorn yourselves with holiness. Be dressed and clothed in that. Every day you wake up and go to your closet, your mirror, your perfumes. Think before you get there. What will I clothe myself today in? I will clothe myself in holiness and the good deeds that adorn a woman who worships God. What follows by way of judgment for the women of Isaiah is humbling to say the least. And to summarise, they begin to look like the leprous Uzziah, covered in sores. An ugly, rag-covered stench, unprotected, unattractive and undesirable. And such will be their poverty that they will, in chapter 4, verse 1, beg. Seven women begging one man. And men, you might think that's wonderful, but if you saw the way they looked, you probably wouldn't. Alright? Seven women begging one man, any man, to take away their disgrace. Now I wonder if you've got the point of the sermon this morning. Have you got the point? God hates hubris. He hates the dark-sided pride of our humanity. Walking in the light of the Lord in chapter 2 and observing the dark-sided pride in chapter 3. If you have done any self-appraisal this morning before the word of God, then I imagine that like me, 
you'd expect to be completely and utterly unforgivable. Of course, you might be thinking at this point, isn't it a little rich for God to damn our human pride while he promotes his own? Doesn't that seem wrong? Isn't it a bit much to read of his majestic splendour and that he is exalted while, and he should be only exalted while he actually attacks our pride? Isn't he being a little unfair? Well, he would be if he wasn't God. That's the first thing. And it, perhaps he would be if God dwelt on the dark side of pride. But it's worth seeing his splendour in action on the right side of pride in chapter 4, verse 2. Because on the day of judgment, against the dark side of pride, he will offer a beautiful and glorious branch, who by the time we reach chapter 11 of Isaiah, we will know to be the Messiah, the Christ, who we can all personally be proud of. And in that beautiful branch, God offers, did you get that word? I want you to pick up that word. Did you pick up that word? In that beautiful branch, God offers. That's a strange contrast to dark-sided pride. Dark-sided pride offers nothing but takes everything and resides in a closed circle that is you. God's splendour is seen in that he pushes the circle open wide to include all that would come. And he will wash clean. Do you see that in verse 4? He'll do it via judgment though. He'll wash the nation clean by judgment. And you know, he does that for us in judgment, doesn't he? He washes you clean in judgment, doesn't he? It's just that the judgment fell on Jesus not on you. It's not that God forwent judgment. He allowed judgment to fall on his son so that you and I might be washed. God's splendour is seen in the circle widening to include us, washing us clean in verse 4, offering light for life in verse 5, and refuge and shelter in verse 6. There is so much in these chapters of Isaiah for our encouragement and I hope today you'll go away with some encouragement, not just feeling kind of a sense of shame um, for your pride, but I want you to hear some encouraging things. And here are just a few. Firstly, a day of judgment is coming for all people and an eternity in hell will be of our own making if that's where we end up. But friends, aren't you glad that there's a warning about that here in the scriptures? Aren't you glad that God in his mercy has spoken a warning to us to say that you don't have to be there? Secondly, the splendour of God. His majestic splendour can do what Isaiah thought should not occur for those who are unforgivable. God stands ready to forgive and wash clean even those who are most darkened by their pride. 
And while women may have looked for a man to take away their disgrace, there is the promise to all of us of the man, Jesus Christ, who will enter our world to take away all our disgrace. Is that not a hallelujah moment? Hello? Is it? Hallelujah! And when people who understand their sin and think, boy, I should hide in the rocks from God's judgment. What a privilege it is to know that Jesus Christ is the rock in which we can hide and in whom there is every security for life. In the early part of the chapter, he will strip in judgment away their security and in Jesus, what will he do? He will give them back the right security for living. You know, dark-sided, proud people are but missed. Humble servants of the Lord Jesus are eternal. That's good news, isn't it? Well, friends, how will we live on the right side of pride today and into the future? How will you do that? Well, I think it begins by not looking at self. It begins by looking to the majestic splendour of the one who can give you every security for life. How will we live on the right side of pride? Can I suggest by observing other Christians who are living on the right side of pride? Humble Christians. Watch them. Look at them. Of course, how will you help other people live on the right side of pride this morning? Can I suggest to you that the best way for you to do that is to point them to the majestic splendour of our great God. And secondly, to model for everyone around you the humility that comes with following Jesus and the right-sided pride that will long to see him glorified, not self. It was pride that changed angels into devils. That's what St. Augustine said. It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes people angels. May we learn humility day by day by seeing more of his majestic splendour. And all God's people said, Amen.